Please note, on this episode of the Territory Story podcast, there is discussion about a story related to child sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. Now, I know I'm not the one that normally says this. That would be Peter Gowers. He is currently on a plane back to Melbourne, so I'm flying solo, pardon the pun. And I have with me our special guest star for this podcast for i don't know the hundred and something episode mr chris walsh from the nt independent online newspaper did i get that right chris yeah you nailed it Leon. <laughs> yeah. good <laughs> intro my man good to see you <laughs> you too you too well mate we've uh it looks like you've been very very busy this week i mean you're always busy but uh, this week in particular the stories have been coming out left right and center yeah, it really was busy, and you had um, you had Parliament on. We had Parliament on oh, yeah, of course. all week, and so that gets a little crazier. But then, and then we had some interesting developments at the inquest that I, I was so on Tuesday because of the witnesses that that had come up that were like, oh wow, okay, we're getting somewhere here because we want to see the whole picture, like we've talked about before, and we're not really getting that today. And so there was some really surprise star witnesses let's say and um you know nick antisich former assistant commissioner you had andrew barham that he was the yes. uh, crown's use of force guy who was discredited yes. in another report and you had um the guy who did the discrediting um scott pollock right. no one knew who what this man even looked like like he could have passed you in the street and you wouldn't have known right. but he's come to be so intertwined in this entire um uh kumajai walker you went to move uh, situation, Zach Rolf being charged, and of course, Pollock's the one who writes this report. Well, he's the highly respected coronial investigator who who's, who leads the coronial investigation until a year goes by, and they don't like what they see, and so he's turfed. And incidentally, so he's showing up to tell his story, or at least we hope that the questions asked will be relevant. So uh, on Tuesday, I was listening to, 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 to that, to the inquest with like a headphone in one ear, and then I had on the other computer parliament going. And then at one point, Pollock said, this is the most biased investigation I have ever seen. And so I quickly turned off. <laughs> Parliament. <laughs> yeah, and I thought oh, I better go listen to this and record this as it's happening <laughs> for notes. And um, yeah, and we'll get into some of that later. And then, but then I missed something very interesting that had happened at Parliament House, which I thought at that point, question time was really dull. Um, but then when I turned it off, of course, something good happens. And right. we'll get into that in another story too. But um so what, yeah, was, so what are you doing while you were you were multi multitasking with your ears? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. He was <laughs> he was off writing something. He's written some good pieces this week too. So he was working on something else, and I thought, yeah, let's see if I can listen to two things at once. For <laughs> the most part, it works. So, All right. Yeah. Well, mate, let's get into these stories because they are interesting. And uh, goodness me, uh, the first one. The Files government has used its numbers in Parliament, well, you know, that's uh, that's that's an issue in itself, um, to pass sweeping changes to the Anti-Discrimination Act. 
that it says will protect the most vulnerable Territorians, but that critics say will hamper free speech. Now, I, I thought the most vulnerable Territorians were Indigenous Territorians. Or, or, <laughs> is that what we're talking well, about here? Oh, no. I mean, in this case, it, it, that that's never come up. I mean, that group of, of being involved in this particular right. example. But, I mean, it stands to reason that they would. Um, uh, it's supposed to affect, it's supposed to be about every territory and really is how they were pitching it. But then when you get down here and you hear the debate, uh, files is saying this protects the most vulnerable, the marginalized. Um, and what she's referencing there was, um, was uh, the, the LGBTQI plus community. And, uh, and that's really kind of where these changes came about. And um, they lobbied the government, apparently, or Chancey Pegg, the attorney general. Um, and what they wanted, I guess, was to, and then they're quite happy with this, that it's passed. It's, of course, been controversial. And now what it does is it repeals these, these changes that they brought in to the Anti-Discrimination Act will repeal Section 37A that permitted discrimination against people based on their sexuality um, and also um, their religion um as well and so you know the the sexuality stuff i think was supported by everybody we don't want to um discriminate based on someone's sexuality uh now the problem when you change the religious part of that is that you then had a lot of religious groups saying well this now changes how we can function and run let's say religious schools and we had bishop uh, charles gauchi saying um you know this will this will just change everything um it will essentially get rid of our faith-based schooling system because we can't hire now uh based on you know the a proposed candidate a teacher for a job uh and them saying you know are you a catholic do you believe in the tenets of the catholic faith um and i guess if you didn't i don't know why you're applying for that job but i guess if you didn't then you know they wouldn't hire you and now that that's not a reason and so they're saying that well now there'll be a lot more applicants that can't discriminate based on faith um so that will affect and will have unintended consequences going forward and and, and gauchi also said that uh this is the strongest kind of legislation in the country at this point uh nobody else has gone this far and you're also looking at um uh the, the, this national, I guess, is a, a federal review is going on right now. So they're saying the religious groups are saying, let's just wait until the national, the federal review is done because they're looking at the similar things. And then we can take guidance here in the NT from that uh, in changing the act if we need to do that. And that was the other thing, too, that had come up during the week is, do you really need to do this? I mean, were there any issues before? And I think Files was on with Katie Wolf. And Katie had some really good questions there, and that was one of them. And she said, you know, has there, has there been issues that have arisen from the current act that, that necessitate this change? And, and Files couldn't point to anything, any particular case, saying, well, I'm not sure of specifics, but, you know, we've got to do this to protect the marginalized and the vulnerable <laughs> and uh, back into the spin. But we really wondered, well, why are you doing that? Why not wait for this national thing? And then, you know, Speaking to Robin Lamley uh, throughout the week as Parliament was starting, you know, she put out a release about this saying that these are radical and dangerous changes. The other part of it, too, is that um, 
you know, that there are other issues at play here, which is not, which is away from the, the, the kind of religious side of this, but also that, um, you know, it, it will now make it uh, illegal to, quote, offend, insult, or humiliate people based on personal attributes. And whether or not somebody can be offended about that, it would also allow for a person, and it does now allow for a person not affected by the alleged offense to file a complaint on behalf of someone else, which is like, that's getting way out there. And, and you know, these things are like really fine lines, but then you're saying that somebody else can get offended for you, for another person, and file a complaint and drag somebody through. You got to wonder if this isn't another attack on the free press here, too. I mean, you know... We're the ones who are more likely to say something publicly that offends or causes offense. And we know that labor uh, uh, gets offended easily. And, and who's the arbiter who decides who, what's offended? I guess the, the anti-discrimination commissioner. But she's about to get a lot busier, I think. Like, mm-hmm. I had to look her up because I totally forgot who it was, Sally Sievers. Um, I don't remember her putting out a press release. I don't remember her doing anything. I think she sat by and everything's run pretty smoothly. But Files wanted to change this. And so uh, getting back to talking to Lamley about that, and, you know, Files likes to talk a lot about labor values, whatever they may come to mean. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that in the next story. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in this instance, she, uh, she said, look, this is not, these are radical and dangerous changes. Um, you know, that it, it, it does that no other jurisdiction has gone this far um and that uh that basically territorians are being for that labor values are being forced on territorians by attorney general chancy pick and what she said was territorians deserve a more sensible less radical approach to anti-discrimination everyone has a right to live their lives free of discrimination on the grounds of sexual gender and religious freedom however this bill is about the attorney general's very close and personal connection to the LGBTQI plus community. Chansey is a champion of their cause, but it seems at the expense of all others. And then, you know, we get back into this issue with him. And, and I think that this is fair to raise because we've just set the stage here. There have been no issues that, that even the government can point to with the existing legislation and the way it was. Um, yeah, and, and now the, the, this issue comes up, and 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 everyone gets up in arms about this religious groups, and they're saying they're not saying they're saying we don't want to, you know, judge anyone based on their sexuality to discriminate. That's fine, we're good with that. But then why change it on the religion thing, and why change it at all before this this federal review is done? So we go back and we think, well, where's this coming from? It's coming from Chancey Peck. He's not listening to reason. We remember that in February. Pake had taken the social media to announce he had been nominated for the One Young World Group's Politician of the Year. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and he uh, so he's promoting himself, and he says, "I'm I grew up in Alice Springs. I'm of Aboriginal and German heritage. I am black, B L A K. I am gay. I am Australian. I'm 34 years old." He wrote uh, while announcing his nomination. He said that he couldn't see himself reflected in the in the people representing his community and our mighty Northern Territory here in Australia. So that's why he got involved in politics. I don't know if he was trying to get votes here for politician of the year. I don't know how that all worked. And I tried to look it up and I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> but the issue here is that this is, and this is what Lamley was saying. She said, look, it's crucial to protect the LGBTQI plus community from discrimination, um, but she was concerned that Pake may have let his personal beliefs interfere in his professional duties as a lawmaker. 
She said his ambition to be recognized as a leader within his community knows no bounds. Seeking accolades as a gay politician speaks volumes. You could argue Peck has a conflict of interest aggressively pursuing the rights of LGBTQI plus community or people whilst hap- happily discriminating against others. Uh, yeah, and, and look, the government, I think it was Lauren Moss who come out and said that these changes were brought forward by the, by the gay and lesbian community and the top on, and pride committee said that they were very happy with this. But of course, I guess that they've spearheaded this through Chancey Peck, the attorney general. Um, and they said, look, it's going to greatly impact the community and provide more opportunities for our people in the education system, uh, that in the religious education system haven't previously existed, which is going to be really great to see and create a lot more acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community. Member Paige Horgan had told the ABC. So, all right, we're, we're, we're changing things here. We're, we're fixing things that aren't broken, essentially. And I get where they're coming from and saying, look, we, I mean, we didn't have any right to, I guess, appeal whether or not they were rejected for a job based on their sexuality. That, that, that seems common sense. That seems like that needed to be done. But then why go this far? And why bring in this other stuff about offending uh, people and letting other people claim to be offended on behalf of others? Anyway, the, the CLP has been... Um, kind of banging the drum on this now for a few weeks. We wrote a story a couple of weeks ago, but at first uh, they're saying basically uh, Gerard Malley came out this week at a press conference uh, during parliament to say that Labour, quote, made a mess of the bill by wrapping up common sense protections with bad legislation that people strongly reject. And he's talking about these religious groups that come out on Saturday at a, a press conference that they held, and uh, a lot of them involved, um, saying the same thing, that these uh, that this legislation is out of step with territorians um, and would cause un- untold issues for them. Um, so what the CLP called for was Labour to consult further and hold off passing the amendments. Um, which were changed too, right? Like this bill was changed. So they put it out in July for public consultation and then they change it before it goes to parliament. Like they get it back from public consultation, change it and then pass it. And so you had some some fighting there with the CLP this week and, and files saying, no, this is, you know, we're not ramming this through, but you kind of are because you're not letting people see the rest and consulting on the rest. You went over consultation, you took, I guess, these comments, you changed it, but then didn't let anyone see the changes and then put it through Parliament. And so that's what they ended up doing. Um, so they, the CLP had called on them to, uh, to just wait until also that, that federal review was done. Um, so Natasha Files, they said this morning, doubled down on passing the bill this week saying the offense provisions would only apply if there was, quote, a profound and serious effect. But the words profound and serious do not appear in the bill, Mr. Malley said. Likewise, Attorney General Chancey Paik said the provisions were directed at people, quote, using hateful and bigoted language and things that were, quote, extremely offensive or grotesque, but none of those words are in the bill. On radio this morning, Files also said people would have plenty of time to look at the bill and how it would be enacted in their situation after the bill was passed. Like, this is just, this is just bad all around. Mm. So, uh, here That's we are That's a second C situation. <laughs> Let's just put the bill out there and see what happens, and then you'll figure out how it works. <laughs> Yeah, and even I think even Kizia Pure, who was against it, said as it was being passed, because they went very late at night, 
And she said, let's just put in a thing that it's reviewed after two years. That's a mm. safe mechanism here, just yeah. in case there's some issues. And they rejected that because Jancy Pegg's got this all figured out and he knows how this is all going to go down. But look, when you don't have the words in the bill, as you know, as a lawyer, if you don't have the words in the contract, it's not going to work. So, yeah. so, and this is what uh, Charles Gauchy, now the bishop, I hear him. I think it was on Tuesday saying, oh, yes, yes, I met with the chief minister and the attorney general. And they assured me that, that you know, there would be no repercussions from this, that everything would be good. And then he puts out a statement later saying, I met with my lawyer and I've, I've changed my mind on what I said. Because despite the assurances. <laughs> he should have right? taken his lawyer to the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. But despite the assurances of what any politician tells you, uh, if it's not in the bill, in the legislation, Yep. It doesn't matter what they say because that's they're not the ones interpreting it after that's that. Right. Well, that's the whole rule of law situation. You don't you don't get to uh, interpret the laws that you uh, pass. <laughs> yeah, and, but that's, <laughs> that's what they're done trying by to do. court. Yeah, and mm -hmm. that's what they're trying to tell. Oh, no, don't worry. It'll only be if it's really offensive. Well, but who determines if it's really offensive? Um, so anyway, we'll get so back to what you were saying uh, right at the start, which yeah. is n n no one has identified this as a problem. They're trying to fix something that doesn't appear to be broken. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are. Uh, it gets past. So 11.45, I, I was, I think I'd come home for dinner. I was on the phone talking to people. I came back in around 11, a little after 11 to start my night shift working on stories. <laughs> and, um, and that was still going. Parliament, I was like, oh, this is the first time in this sitting that they've gone this late. So I think just about every politician would have got up and given their, their two cents on this. Um, and at 11.45, bang, it passed and that's it. And let's see what happens. Now, I think it'll come into effect sometime next year. Um, yeah, you know, it'll be interesting too. I mean, I'm just been talking with other people, you know. One of the things that could be done here is that it could be used against labor. And they didn't think about that. It would just be interesting if some groups got together and said, okay, well, here's how this new thing works, but labor has offended me or labor's done something like this and use their own legislation against them. I don't know what's gonna happen, but they don't either, right? Like this is just this is just poor policy, very poor policy to just do it the way that they've done this. And um We'll see what the consequences are, but people aren't happy. That's for sure. Well, yeah, it's it's you know, I'm, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, you could draw some parallels between this and what the United States Supreme Court did in relation to uh, the abortion laws. You know yeah. that, that they they changed <laughs> that uh, when you know everyone that was a survey in the U.S. Uh, that the majority, uh, a significant majority. Uh, were, were were pro uh, well, uh, what do you, what do you call it? They pro no, they weren't pro life. What's the opposite of pro life? Pro, pro choice. choice. Pro yeah. choice. Yeah. No, pro choice. Mm -hmm. uh, yet uh, the, the the United States Supreme Court, because they're you know, obviously the court stacked now six three, passed uh, well decided in favor decided a case. Which, to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, to yeah. overturn Roe v. I'm just trying to think, remember the case now. Dobbs, I think it is. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and and so a lot of people were upset. And as a result of that, um, the, the most recent election that they had there yeah. uh, uh, this month, um, the, the Republicans were supposed to have romped it in and yeah. did nothing. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, the Senate is actually still held now by 
by the Democrats. Yeah. And yeah. so listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, well, it feels to me like Labor here in the Territory is at the zenith of its power. Yeah. Uh, and like all political parties at the zenith of their power, and I remember the, the the Liberals were in this situation uh, federally at one point in time when, during John Howard's era, and then they passed the uh, the laws in relation to um, the workplace arrangement. I think they called it, I can't remember, the, the, the work choices or something was called. And the next election, they came a cropper, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it feels to me that Labor is going down the same path. Yeah. Yeah, well, and because we don't know the consequences yet of what this will mean, but, you know, there's, some, you know, files got to the point where she said, oh, we're still out to tell jokes in the pub. But I mean, it might be something like that. Somebody does make a joke in a pub that somebody else gets offended for somebody else yeah. and then go drag somebody through this oh, discrimination of, process. Yeah, the, the, the word offense is, yeah. is bandied around more than I've ever heard it, mm. um, and mm -hmm. particularly in Parliament. Yeah, particularly yeah, by, this, by government. this government. Yeah, um, and you you combine the word offence with uh, with with the cancel culture, and and it's just quite toxic, really. Yeah, and that's it. We just don't know what's going to happen with this, so um, we'll see. We'll see. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, the next story is. Um, the Kent Rowe story, the Files Labor government has shut down a censure motion brought by the opposition for not publicly condemning the actions of their former party secretary and ministerial advisor, Kent Rowe, for repeatedly raping a child while questions have been raised about the response the deputy chief minister gave when asked about when she first became aware of the sex crimes. Yeah, that's where we're going these days. Um, you know, in Parliament, uh, the CLP, the opposition, spent uh, a good portion of question time on Wednesday just asking the government about this and why in 84 days since the conviction has the chief minister not come out to condemn the, the former party power broker, the guy who, who's worked on, on all of their campaigns, the, everybody, just about everybody who's in there. Uh, this guy had a hand in, in everything, pre-selection process and everything. Um, and yet the party has, as we've talked about, been unwilling. Kate, Kate Warden had come out and we had asked her and she got very nervous and uncomfortable about it. And she eventually said something about it. It's gone through the court system and whatever. Um, and now uh, the CLP saying, well, you know, you need to, you need to come out here and actually condemn this man for his actions and say that you won't tolerate it. Remember, we got it back into that thing that the that, that Labour likes to accuse the CLP of, of standing with racists, as they say. And then the CLP hasn't even done that yet, but said, you know, basically, but you're hanging with rapists. And why aren't you denouncing this stuff? Because we don't know. And and I think I think it was Leah who said it, or it might have been Mary Claire Boothby, but something like every day that you don't denounce this it makes the public think that, that you're condoning it that you're accepting it it's very it seems like it should be an easy thing to do so um yeah so that's where it kind of went during question time on wednesday uh yeah to the point 
that uh, it it got to a censure motion. And so, can we, you explain what that means? A censure motion? Yeah. Well, I mean, it would just be to slap the government on the wrist for not behaving, and there'd be debates, and then you do a vote, and they'd be punished in some form for not um, basically not doing their job in the way in which the people expect. But a lot of the process of that and what the politicians, political parties get out of that is that the debate that ensues and then you get to air all of your grievances, if you will, with the party. And so to get the censure motion, you first put forward the motion to do that. And that's usually gets approved. And then the debate ensues. But what Labor's done a lot now is just kill the censure motion before it can even be debated, which means that it kills uh, their ability to talk about it in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's a tactic now that's gone on for quite a while uh, by Labour to, to just use their numbers and say, no, nope, we're not going to uh, even allow you to debate the censure motion, which wouldn't get up anyway because, you know, they still have the numbers and they vote it down. But it's more a thing that they take it. I think that They've done it four times this week, and the CLP might be overusing it at this point as well. Um, but there were four things. There was that. There was crime. Uh, I think the budget thing too, which we'll get into later. Um, there were a lot of. There were four issues this week that they tried to bring a censure motion forward on. One of them they had put on the uh, on the <laughs> on the daily order of business from last sittings because they didn't want it to be shut down and they wanted to do a full debate about it. And this was about crime. And um, so they got to do that. But anyway, so getting back to this issue. So at one point, Files is asked in question time directly about it. Uh, I think it was Leah Fernacaro. Uh, she dismissed. Well, at one point, actually, it was Josh Bergwine had asked Files if Rose sacking in February 2021 as a senior advisor to Gunner following his involvement in the cocaine sex scandal was connected to this sex offending. And if they knew about it at that time, file said she wasn't going to answer that, that she dismissed it, said she wanted to discuss other matters. Uh, a few minutes before that, files had been asked about, you know, why haven't you come out and said anything? And she said, this matter has been dealt with through the courts. Of course, I condemn that behavior. So it's the first time any member of Labor has actually condemned his actions publicly like that. Uh, but the CLP moved the censure motion um, over their ongoing silence, Bo Rowe. But uh, Chancey Paik rejected the motion and no debate ensued. <laughs> but yeah, so um, Mary Claire Boothby, the CLP shadow minister for women, she uh, had brought forward, I think, the motion. But she had said Territorians have been waiting for 84 days since Ken Rowe was convicted to hear from the chief minister on this deeply disturbing matter and the close relationship between the offender and her government. Territorians expect files and members of her cabinet to take a strong stand against the reprehensible behavior of this individual. Um, Territorians want to know why files spruce about labor values, but fails to publicly condemn the most heinous of actions and send a clear message to our community that such behavior is despicable. Um, Yeah, so, uh, you know, we got to that point. Um, now, what had happened the day before was Robin Lamley and I and I had to switch over as I was listening to the inquest. Um, Robin Lamley gets up and she asked Nicole Madison specifically, what did you know about this offending of Kent Rowe? And when did you know it? And what did you do about it? And so Madison says something unusual in a sense. And I mean, 
I'll put it like, because look, this is my opinion on it is whenever a politician, whenever anybody answers a question and starts it with, I will answer the question honestly, something's going on. (laughs) That's not what they're going to do. Who who does that? Like that was the most bizarre start to the answer. Well, aren't they supposed to answer honestly in parliament? (laughs) At all times. You're going to let it mislead parliament, right? Well, and here's where I think that may have happened. In my opinion, well, let me tell you what happens next. So she says, I found out about this when this was reported in the media. Now, Roe was not actually named in the media reports as an alleged rapist for legal reasons until October 2021. That was six months after he had been charged. So if she's saying that she found out about it when it was reported in the media, I just I think that's a disingenuous answer. I don't think that that's true at all. I think that everybody in political circles knew about this from the days that followed that press release that went out that said a 38-year-old man or whatever he was at the time has been charged with historical sex offenses involving a minor, a child, uh, uh, Everybody in political circles knew I got a phone call about it. I called other people. Everybody was calling. Everybody was talking about this. This was huge news. But yet, Nicole Madison, the deputy chief minister, who also happens to be the police minister at that time, in April 2021, she says that she didn't know until she read about it in a newspaper. And so I went back and I checked because I remember the time, but I thought I better double check this. It was six months before we could name him in a media report. So I I don't think her answer is completely accurate here. Uh, And I just know some other things and and look, it'll all come out in a a story later on. Um, I'm still putting together a few things here, but yeah, Lamley also didn't buy that. She said it wasn't believable. The answer, she said, it's unlikely that close colleagues and friends of Roe did not know anything at all about the allegations before it came out in the media. People close to him and the victim absolutely knew about the allegations, and that includes at least one or two Labour members. Well, if you're talking about just party members or members of parliament, I don't know, but party, look, you've, yeah, there was a witness list, right? Nicole Madison's brother was on the witness list for the trial. There's, you know, <laughs> her brother must have known something, yet she says she didn't until it was reported. I think that there's more to come on that one. Um, and exactly the, the whole picture here of how this happens and how the, the culture of the Labour Party and how, you know, it may not be exactly the way they like to present it, why it took so long to come out and condemn the actions. It's, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot more to come on this, uh, Leon, for sure. And I can say, and we've, you know, we've already run the list. You can go google the list and you can see who's on there there's a lot of a lot of labor figures on here so including madison's brother you had who uh and madison's brother was was actively involved in the party and campaigning and adding out pamphlets and stuff um you got gunner's former deputy chief of staff and brother-in-law ryan neve uh his sister kayla neve uh plunkett is her name now uh gunner's electorate officer anna mcleod 
current Labor Secretary Carly Dalton's husband and party operative Robert Dalton, and of course, Roe's wife and Darwin Alderman Rebecca Want the Roe. However, uh, Ryan Neve and Hannah McLeod, Gunner's lecture officer, did not uh, end up providing evidence at the trial after being scratched from the witness list. We don't know the reasons for that. It could be anything, you know, how these trials go. So, <laughs> um, there's a lot of people in the party that you would think if they're being called as witnesses knew something and uh, uh we will have more on it for sure okay um on the subject of, of uh, legal proceedings the next story uh the senior investigator in charge of the coronial investigation into constable zach rolf's actions in uendamu has told an inquest that the NT police's criminal investigation was the most biased investigation against a sub suspect he had seen in his long and distinguished career with the NT police force. Uh, yeah, um, it was almost shocking if we didn't already kind of have a sense of this from some other reporting that had come out. Uh, but here we are. And I just got to say that too, that, that, that they haven't released some of the stuff. Um, but anyway, we'll stick to what, what he said in parliament or in at the inquest. Sorry. Um, this is of course, we were talking about superintendent Scott Pollock or retired superintendent Scott Pollock. Now he provided evidence at the, at the inquest, um, stating that not only was the criminal investigation biased against Rolf, he also raised concerns about it taking a toll on his health and that it led to his early retirement. And I think I think even Peggy Dwyer got up. I think she was the one who first questioned him. And this is counsel assisting the coroner. And she said, you know, but, you know, I know you like to be modest, but you're highly respected in the anti-police force. We were. And he said, well, yeah, look, I, I work, I've worked with great teams and we've accomplished some things. This guy was the lead investigator. So former coroner. Uh, Greg Kavanaugh uh, would have worked with Scott Pollock a lot. He was the police's, the anti-police's go-to guy for coronial investigations. And by all accounts, like she said, an impeccable career, uh, uh, widely respected by everybody. You talk to anybody in the, in the legal fraternity and police fraternity, they all respected this man. So what happened? <laughs> That's what we wanted to know. What, what, how, how does he just disappear? And nobody hears from him. His phone's disconnected. Can't even call him. He just disappears, becomes a ghost. And 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 when he kind of enters into it, the, the story, and we're going back a couple of years now, but you remember the, the, the it comes out in court before the trial that that Jamie Chalker has suppressed, has buried some documents, a report of some sort. <laughs> and and Rolf's defense team have to take it to court to try and get these documents that they just found out about because somebody had leaked it to them. Somebody had told them, Hey, there's this whole other report that the police executive don't want you to see. And so they get it and they're successful to some degree. It's heavily redacted. And the questions would be, well, what wasn't in there? Um, and this just becomes this, this, this object in, in the entire, uh, trial and everything that that well, what was in it i think the public's curious well why did this need to be suppressed like why was the executive trying to suppress this and not just give it up in in disclosure with everything else 
Well, and then we, we start to get the story. And of course, we had obtained draft copies of uh, a report, let's say that Pollock was involved with, but also Proctor who replaced him. And then, you know, the story starts, the narrative starts to come out that, um, that this guy Pollock, widely respected, highly respected guy, gets kicked off the report for some reason. So here he is testifying, shows up to provide evidence at the inquest. And he talks about this stuff. And he says that uh, uh, some of the concerns that he had raised, that he didn't know whether Rolf had received the proper training at the police college. Uh, now, this goes back to um, the story that we did a couple of years ago. We won an award for, which was the failures, the absolute failures at the police college, where they couldn't, they didn't know who, who was coming and going. They didn't know who was teaching. They didn't even know who had passed. And they're putting these people out on the road before even doing proper assessments. These guys were given guns and told their police officers and get out there and we'll worry about your marks later. Don't worry about that. It was just crazy. I mean, they were violating so many uh, national standards and regulations that, you know, we had the, the civil liberties people saying like, you could have things overturned here because these guys aren't trained properly. Not to mention just the danger that presents to every territory. Anyway, Pollock had brought this up. He said that he didn't think that, 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 that Rolf had received the proper training at the police college and he couldn't find the people who actually trained him. He also, you know, and he also raised, though, not to say that he was in there defending Rolf. And I mean, that's saying that he didn't get the training. I don't think it's a defense. Um, but he said, look, he was also concerned the police didn't pick up on red flags, what he called red flags about Rolf's uh, aggressive behavior. Remember, there was a psych report that said that he had a propensity to be aggressive in situations. Uh, some of this has been, you know, further uh, uh traveled i guess or traversed in uh during the inquest by counsel assisting so he said yeah like why didn't they do that why didn't they know about this and take action before somebody died um you know th th there's a lot of questions here so he also said that uh andrew barham you know he was the use of force expert uh he said that the barham and uh other others who have been involved in the trials, witnesses, they weren't given all the evidence before their reports were finalized. And he said some of that information that they hadn't been given was critically important, in my view, to the assessment of whether Rolf's deadly use of force was appropriate or inappropriate, he said. So that that's pretty serious. I mean, that is their use of force expert, and he wasn't given all of the evidence. And, and so Pollock puts this in his report. Pollock told the inquest that his uh, investigative team could not identify who at the police college trained Rolf in the use of force and that he suspected Rolf had not received the training that Barham had claimed in his evidence. He said we couldn't even identify the person who was scheduled to deliver the training. The records had never been updated. It's a breach of registered training organization procedures. At the end of the day, we could not even identify anyone who delivered the training. The reason we were desperate to do that was to see or seek confirmation that this is what they were taught. Pollock said that he didn't get to interview Barham to find out why he was claiming to have knowledge of the training. Now, Barham was at the school, at the college. Um, Pollock was at one point, too, <laughs> before he became, you know, the, the lead inv coronial investigator. So, you know, both men understand how that works. But Barham was saying that he knew the training and, and Pollock saying, well, I just don't know. And there's other issues. You weren't given all the evidence. And 
Um, so he had raised, uh, well, one of the things that he had raised was that it was possible that Adam Eberl, that was Rolf's partner, may have been cut or, or kind of gnashed with uh, those scissors when they were in the scuffle with Walker. Hmm. And remember, Rolf had said something about that. So uh, Pollock is the man who, who goes over the review uh, of the body-worn video. He reviews that and he's saying, Mm, something might have happened here and there was a scratch there was a, a tear on the on the shirt somewhere on the shirt of Ebrol. but none of this had had been looked at in over a year uh as they're building the case the criminal investigation right is going on while the coronial investigation is going on pollock's in charge of the coronial investigation You've got, uh, I think it was uh, Martin Dole and some other joint management committees in charge of the criminal investigation. So, you know, it gets to this point where um, where Assistant Commissioner at the time, Nick Antisich, and he was up this week as well, as I mentioned at the inquest, but he sees the, the coronial reports coming from Pollock. Uh, where Pollock had raised his concerns in Antisich, uh, Pollock said when he brought it up to him about this investigation is biased. This is the most biased investigation. There were a lot of other matters. You know, people were being, they were mixing the coronial and the criminal and coercing, remember, Narelle Beer. And this came up the other day. Assistant Commissioner uh, had come in and she was being forced to provide evidence. And she said, well, is this for the coronial or the criminal? And they're they're mixing these things up and trying to force people with uh, you know with threats of disciplinary action to provide evidence that would be used at the criminal trial. Anyway, so but they're running criminal, they're running coronial, Pollock's running coronial. Um, Antisich comes in as the assistant commissioner, and he uh, Pollock said he became agitated during the meeting that uh, Pollock had with him, and there was also uh, Proctor David Proctor who was also involved with the coronial investigation at the time. But uh, Pollock said he became agitated, Antisich did during the meeting. I think I was bringing the problem and not the solution. Uh, later, we heard that there was a phone call where Antisich became abusive, intimidatory, and threatening when this biased investigation was raised with him. And so what Antisich does is he kills the coronial investigation at that point. And he says, uh, you know, we're going to, I don't know why these are both happening at the same time. It might mix up. Now, this is a year after, uh, this has already started a year after the shooting. They're running two investigations. And then after a year, he just wakes up one day and decides, yeah, this isn't a good idea. I'm going to shut down the coronial, which just happens to be around the time of Pollock's doing his findings and saying this criminal, this is like, I'm looking at the evidence here. You guys aren't looking at this evidence. Um, and you're trying to put this man away. Uh, yeah, so I think it was at some point Antisich said, oh, I was only for three days. But meanwhile, Pollock gets moved off um, the case. Now, what happens is, uh, and we'll get back into that for a sec, but in a sec, but uh, Pollock said he had been moved from this coronial investigation into the shooting death of Kumanjai Walker. Uh, after a year uh, into something called incident control position for COVID-19 management. <laughs> this is a highly respected investigator who's thrown on some COVID control position, incident control position around the end of 2020. Uh, with the anticipation he would retire, he had made it clear 12 months later 
in March of 2021, Pollock said he met with uh, Jamie Chalker and two deputy commissioners where he indicated he would like to stay in that role until he retired in nine months at this point, still in this COVID role. He so was he was get, happy in that role then, was he? Well, it doesn't sound, but he, he thought, look, I've, I've got another year to retirement. I'm just going hmm. to stay here. Uh, but no, and then he was, he was given assurance by the commissioner that would happen. He said two weeks later, he said, I think around mid-March, he rang me and said that he was going to transfer me to the territory duties superintendent position, um, which is, yeah, a completely different job. And so Sally Oslin's the lawyer for the police association said, what did you do as a result of that? Retired, Pollock responded. So he's so put he was into, basically forced out then. Yeah, into, that's what he's saying into early retirement. Now he added that he that he felt completely unsupported by the organization after decades as a distinguished and respected investigator, and that quote his health was declining as a result of this. Asked if anyone in, in anti police had contacted him or offered support after his early retirement, Pollock replied, "None. They turned their back on me." Uh, and he added that it still affected him to this day. Uh, yeah, and then we get into um, Antisich. So before before Pollock was up, Nick Antisich was up, and that got interesting. And he started uh, being questioned uh, about about this kind of stuff, um, the, about the rush to charge Rolf with murder within four days of the in- incident. Now, at this point, Council Assistant Peggy Dwyer. She gets up and starts objecting, and, and Armitage, the coroner, says, yeah, I was going to object, so I'm glad you did that first kind of thing in there. And all of a sudden, Peggy Dwyer's concerned about time. I mean, she gets up talking. She doesn't care. This can go on forever, and she's loving every second of it. But now this stuff comes up about what happened with this investigation. Was, there, was it perverting the course of justice, potentially? And she doesn't care about this. She does not care. She says, we don't have time to do this. What? She said, everyone, you got 20 minutes with this guy, so make it quick. <laughs> um, yeah, so Antisich, again, just to remind you, he suddenly retired before the criminal trial. Uh, he had oversight of the entire criminal investigation. He uh, grew annoyed with questions about the use of Sergeant Andrew Parham uh, while he was on the stand at the inquest this week as the use of force expert uh this guy, Miranda, a lawyer for Rolf, raised the issue of public stated concerns about Sergeant Barron's evidence being tainted. I never heard the word tainted ev- evidence, Antisich replied, adding he was aware, though, of concerns raised about Barron's evidence. I don't know why we're making an issue of this aspect, to be frank. You could tell Antisich did not want to go down this path here, and it didn't seem like the coroner or counsel assisting did either. So Dwyer gets up again and objects to questions around why the criminal investigation team uh, did not seek a proper use of force expert who wasn't connected to the anti-police. So that's where they went. And they're saying, well, why didn't you get somebody good? I mean, you also had the other guy, the, the superintendent, Danny Bacon, saying that, that Barham had a conflict of interest. Uh, Pollock saying he wasn't given all the evidence and that he wasn't qualified to do this. Um, and get somebody else. And then, yeah, so Peggy Dwyer says basically that, that Miranda's wasting the inquest time get to the point Armitage said. So Miranda asked Anisich about a phone call he had made to Pollock where, while he was leading the coronial investigation that was described as abusive, intimidatory, and threatening due to Pollock's ongoing concerns about Barham not being provided all of the facts and his lack of knowledge about proper police training. 
Uh, he says, you repeated on several occasions. Do you know how effing embarrassing this is? And importantly, he says that you demanded to know what information he was passing on to the coroner. So Antisich is now, you know, involving himself, according to this, in, in, in all aspects of this. Uh, Antisich says, I don't recall that Miranda raised minutes from a meeting, uh, which we take it the coroner must have that we'll all get to see at some point, uh, between Antisich Pollock and then lead coronial investigator, Superintendent David Proctor, in which Antisich said he had accepted, quote, the risk to the anti-police force of using Barham for the investigation before going to trial. Antisich later admitted that he had suspended Pollock's and then lead investigator David Proctor's coronial investigation in favor of keeping the criminal investigation going. Antisich said that was necessary uh, because after more than a year, he determined it was totally inappropriate to have both investigations running concurrently. He added that he had no problem with the coronial investigation, only that a quote should not be done while a criminal investigation is extant. He was not asked and did not explain why it took a year to determine that. It's only at the time that this stuff becomes uncomfortable. Drafts of Pollock's report were, of course, later handed over to Rolf's defense team, but in redacted form after their existence was leaked, following Jamie Chalker's attempt to suppress them. Um, yeah, and then we had Martin Dole here and the connection with him uh, and Walker's family. Now, Walker Dole was one of the lead people on the murder investigation into Rolf. Uh, he, at the inquest, rejected allegations of political interference and bias in the investigation based on his close relationship with Walker's relatives. Now, this was Eddie Robertson. I think it was acting as Walker's grandfather or his girlfriend's grandfather, um, very close with Walker. Uh, they had this close, he had this close kinship relationship, they called it, um, with Martin Dole, the guy who's one of the investigate, one of the, the people in charge of the criminal investigation. And he, he gets walked through the police code of conduct. And he said, well, I could see where, you know, it might appear that, but look, I didn't make any critical decisions. Um, he made no, well, he did, he said, despite being on the joint management committee that made critical decisions about the investigation, he made no investigative decisions and that his relationship with Walker's family did not affect any of those decisions that he made. Um, he also slipped in <laughs> kind of weirdly, uh, just they'll also claim that police commissioner, Jamie Chalker had absolutely no involvement in the investigation. Uh, which we know, despite detective notes previously reported, that suggested he had. Uh, the inquest resumes on Friday. They're doing stuff. Look, I, I, I've told you before, Leon, like, we don't have the time. I got to listen to things at once. I just can't. <laughs> but I knew that I knew this was going to be interesting when Pollock's coming up because we've been waiting to hear from this guy a long time. So I had to listen to it. And it took a long time. I don't know why any other media haven't reported this. I'm really kind of troubled by that because... They couldn't hear two things at once, Chris, clearly. <laughs> well, right, so you shut off the other and you just pay attention <laughs> to this when it gets good. Um, but look, I had to go back over the transcript as well. I wanted to make sure that I got this right. Uh, uh, and I did, and I know what he's saying here. And, and this is shocking. And uh, the narrative about all of this, right? Like, I'm not... You, you say what you will about Zach Rolf. You know, you either like him or you hate him. Um, you know, he, he's made comments uh, that I think everybody finds unacceptable in these messages with other officers there. Uh, 
this doesn't mean that you pin a murder charge on the guy. All right. Like if Jamie Chalker doesn't like him, the executives don't like him. And they think that, okay, we've got these texts, these racist tech, and we're going to get them with this and we're going to get them. <laughs> this is this is bordering on. If not, I think the allegations out there, somebody should be investigating exactly what happened because you've got the the one of the most respected senior investigators in the police force saying this investigate the criminal investigation was biased. I raised it. They got rid of me. They put me out to early retirement. It's affected my mental health, my physical health. And, and, and yet nobody, nobody's even reported on that, but he's laid out all of these issues that he raised. And one of the things that he said in there, I don't know if I got into that, but I think I went over that part, but he said that he felt he needed to raise this because if he didn't, um, miscarriage of justice or something. Right. And, and, and a retrial. And, and, Mm -hmm. and, and so this man has the integrity that, and this costs him his, job yeah and he does it and and then and nobody's reporting on this like this is crazy this is uh, and somebody's going to investigate it and i was thinking about that today so apparently we still have the icac investigating the four days between the shooting and the decision to charge but that has nothing to do with this right this is like the investigation that happened after um so the icac's not looking into this presently uh, the inquest wanted this over with. Um, just all right, hurry up, hurry up. Stop wasting our time with this stuff. Uh, who's going to look at this? I'm, I'm concerned that this isn't even going to make it into the to the uh, the coroner's final report. I mean, it has to. The evidence is all there. But this is this is pretty serious stuff here. Like this is really troubling that they would put together a case that was that biased and not withhold evidence from people who they relied on to provide evidence against Rolf. It's just crazy. And and I thought, okay, well, maybe it's going to take them a little longer to write this story because it's a little complicated. And it, and it did. It took me a long time to write it. I was up late trying to finish this and going over the, the, uh, the transcripts of everybody that day because there was so much information. But yeah, you have to report this stuff when 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 somebody is serious and respected as as Pollock gets up and, and tells his story about what happened. And I and I think like, you know, the ICAC can do his own, you know, investigations. He doesn't, I think, need a referral on these kind of things. So I think he should be paying attention to this because this is this is really bad. This is raising those issues uh, with the overall anti-police force that the we were saying from the beginning in an editorial or something needs to be looked at in this. Like we think everything does. This isn't about racist text messages. This is about uh, procedural failures that led to uh, Rolf being in that room. And he broke procedures that led to him being in that room and you end and why he was that close in close contact, even though he, and he, and he was stabbed and like, they're not even reporting that anymore, but you know, he was. Um, and, and, but what were all of the failures that led to that, right? The, the, the miscommunication, the trying to trick the community afterwards and all of that stuff. Like, and some of that thankfully has come out, but we want to see it overall. I just, I just always get worried that we get kind of caught up in this narrative that Peggy Dwyer seems to be producing here, which is, even though she said at the beginning, there's no good guys and there's no bad guys. It is so very theatrically and hammy, I would say. Um, when then she really is going after this instead of uh, going after who she thinks is the bad guy, instead of saying like, even if you think 
that Rolf is the bad guy. You don't pin a murder charge on him. You don't corrupt a criminal investigation to ensure that he gets charged with this. And this is what has come out the other day was going on. So somebody's got to look at it. Hmm. Right. Well, uh, let's let's leave that there, Chris, and move on to the next story, which is somewhat connected. Uh, police Commissioner Jamie Chalker says the police rank and file have dramatically more confidence in him since truths have been revealed at the coronial inquest into the death of Kumanjai Walker. Well, if anyone's going to make it about himself, it would be Jamie Chalker. Um, this is unusual, an unusual statement to make, almost like he's, you know, taking the light in the misfortune of others here or something. Uh, I don't get it, even if he believes that, why he thinks it's a good idea to come out and tell everybody, well, this inquest is showing the truth. And he's throwing around words like, <laughs> phrases like, the truth. Um, and now everybody's coming back to me. And it's, it, I think it's changed dramatically, he says, uh, since a lot of truth has come out. Adding that the attrition rate has now dropped markedly. Well, that's because there's no one left to resign. But he says, um, we've made significant, uh, significant arrests. We've loaded up the jails. Justice is being done. And we are out there providing support to the community. Now, keep in mind, he's, he's at a press conference fronting the media after the mayhem that happened in Alice Springs, where they had to shut the CBD down. And he's saying we're deploying 40 more officers because they're stealing cars and smashing into the police cars again, which was the second time in, in two weeks or something that this has happened. Um, but he does at some point at this press conference to get asked about this. He says that, yeah, they have more confidence in them since the truths have come out. Uh, and of course, we know that that survey found 90 percent of those surveyed uh, members, police members, had no confidence in his leadership. So he decides that the inquest is all about him and is changing everyone's perception. So he says the inquest had provided the truth and the racist text messages shared between officers and Alice Springs, including Constable Zach Rolf, were, quote, completely and utterly reprehensible. People have now seen the truth for what it is as the evidence has been presented and are now making the appropriate judgment calls, he said. There is a cultural change going on, and people now understand why that has occurred. Now he's talking there about himself cleaning up these issues. Uh, of course, he always says took place long before he became commissioner, um, because he came, became commissioner two days uh, following that incident. You <laughs> Now, his comments come, though, before Armitage has finished her report into the death of Mr. Walker and before public hearings have even ended, which are expected to now carry over into next year. Uh, I don't understand why Chalker decides in his role as police commissioner that's good to come out and do a victory lap. Because before this thing's even done, before she's even close to doing any final report on this, and before everyone's done uh, providing evidence, he starts saying, no. The truth came out. These racist text messages showed everything as if this is some vindication for him personally. This is like really disturbing that this man thinks like this. And, you know, and the other thing he said, so they asked him, they said, uh, you know, what about the low morale? Because, look, the, 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 the survey wasn't all about the Uendamu incident. 
and Rolf. You know, there there are serious mental health issues going on there that Chalker has had three years now to address that he hasn't. You got people crying out for help. Remember just the the bungles and the stuff ups with the are you okay stuff and 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 them not responding to people. You've got uh, uh you've got so many issues in there that that are going to be so difficult to address. And we know that. And we've been up through all of those before for what seems like months, if not years, and nothing seems to get done. And mm-hmm. so one of the reporters asked him, they said, uh, and of course, remember that Chalker's always never shown contrition for any of these, the multitude of problems facing the force, uh, repeatedly downplaying those results, even though the NTPA said the force was in complete crisis as early as like a couple months ago. Um, so Chalker claimed on Wednesday, when he was asked by a reporter about morale, that morale was clearly no longer at record lows because today he was sending 40 officers to Alice Springs to help deal with a lawless state that local officials down there said the government has lost control over. Uh, his quote was this, 40 people, police officers, are packing up to go and do that. He said, that doesn't signal poor morale to me. Right. <laughs> Well, it kind of does to me. Do you think that these 40 officers are happy to pack up, leave their homes and their families to go down Alice Springs because of the of the issues down there that they can't seem to control? And, and they just refuse to ask for help, right? We had the mayor come out, ask for a federal help again. He's been doing this for over a year. Um, Daniel Rochford with Tourism Central Australia said, we need, we need the federal police in here. We need to regain control so people feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's saying, but again, it's all about now. This, there's no low morale. I'm sending a bunch of people down there. That doesn't signal poor morale to me. It has nothing to do with it. Like mm. it's, yeah, I like this man. I don't know. I uh, anyway, he um, well, he's told everybody what they think now. Uh, everybody's with him. He's confident. Uh, confidence has dramatically improved. He has no way of measuring this or knowing this, but. He said that's how it is. I think one of the comments somebody, I don't know who this was, put on our Facebook page on it was, this man has the confidence of a five-year-old in a Batman costume. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, he, it's not logical. He's just, yes, I'm Jamie Chalker, and and everybody's with me now because the inquest has revealed the truth before the coroner's done writing it. <laughs> but in Jamie Chalker's mind, the truth is out there. It's it's wild. I. I, I don't even know what to say, Leon, anymore about this guy. There you have it right there, making it about himself. And that's it. Right. Um, well, on the subject of police, and uh, you, you did allude to this story just then, the Files government has lost control of Alice Springs and should really realise the problems are beyond them and call for federal government help. The head of Central Australia Tourism has said in the wake of police telling residents to stay out of the CBD for the second time in two weeks and as police claim reinforcements are on the way. So those are the 40 40 people that went down there. They were the reinforcements, right? That's right. Yeah, and that's his solution to this. Where they're saying, like, look, this is so far gone, then we need... We need dramatic intervention from the feds. I think you might have had just sent price talking about the army or something. Somebody was, uh, uh, I, uh, we had listened to Rochford on Katie and he had said, 
but look, we probably don't want to go that far, but we want, we need help. We need the feds to come in. If it's the AFP, maybe that's what needs to happen because the NT doesn't have this, right? I mean, this is, they don't have 40 police to just throw down to Alice Springs. And, and what he's doing a story uh, that will run Friday uh, about the attrition rates and where it's really at um, and, and what the numbers are at because they're very low. They've plummeted. Uh, so we'll have more on that, but they don't have 40 police to, to spare basically to send to Alice Springs for this stuff. So they're saying the people down there are saying you know, the officials, the mayor, the head here of, uh, central Australia tourism saying we need the feds to come in and provide this backup, bring in the AFP, bring in whatever you can. Now this, again, it comes with the, the cars being stolen and, and smashed in second time. It's many weeks, uh, you know, and they're targeting police cars down there and they did it in Catherine last week and now they've done it again in Alice Springs. Uh, Rutcher said the government does not have control of this town and crime is getting worse. Just last week, the Cattlemen's Association made the decision to not hold their annual conference in Alice Springs because of safety concerns, a million dollars lost to our regional economy. The fact this is happening on such a regular basis now, it has just got to that stage where people have had enough. And I think the reality is, uh, he said, you and I talked probably two months ago that the government did not have control of this town. It's just gotten worse. It's getting worse, not better. Uh, uh, and yet nothing seems to, uh, to be working down there. Um, well, it's interesting comment that he says, uh, well, he said, Katie Wolf, I, I think you've quoted here and, and you know, the government is doing all they can to help. Yeah. So he, yeah. he he is acknowledging, or it seems to be suggesting, the government is doing everything they can, which is what he's saying. But it's it's beyond them now; they don't have the power to deal with this, and they've made that clear. And look, this guy is on the social order response team. <laughs> you know, that's the body that they set up that they said was going to fix all of the problems, and it was bureaucrats and and some police and other people. And the social order response team was going to restore social order, as the name suggests. Uh, and he's sitting with them in the room and he's saying that they don't, they're trying their best, but they don't have the power to, to, to control this situation. Uh, when you've got a guy doing that, you got to listen to him. And yet Kate Warden and Jamie Jocker saying, nah, nah, we've, we've got this under control. Uh, uh, we'll just, 40 more police and we'll do that. And like, what are you going to do down there? It just doesn't work. Where are you going to put these kids? Are you arresting them? Are you not? Remember she got in trouble by saying that it was going to be an intervention like thing where uh, Aboriginal youth would be taken away from their homes. If they're found not to be, if, if the homes are not safe for them to be in or that the, the, the homes encourage this kind of uh, criminal behavior, um, but every time that they try and bring that up or say that, it's just, it doesn't resonate with anybody because she said it two weeks ago and we're going to do this. And now here we are two weeks later and the exact same thing has happened. Hmm. So I, I get the frustration and, you know, and they don't feel safe, uh, people in Alice Springs, and they haven't for a long time. Um, yeah, now they're being told they just, they never know when the, the police will send out an email alert or whatever, just telling people, do not go into your CBD. It is not safe. There are people <laughs> driving stolen cars and, and targeting cops and other people. It's just crazy. So 
Woody went to uh, the NTPA about the uh, the 40 officers, as I mentioned, uh, and they basically said, uh, no, nah, this is uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, is what uh, uh, McHugh said. He said uh, he supported the commissioner's decision because, of course, he's not going to criticize Jogger. So he supported the commissioner's decision to deploy the officers to Alice Springs to deal with the spiraling crime, uh, including offenders deliberately targeting police, but said it was a direct result of poor policy from the files government. Well, it's a yeah, contribution of a lot of things. Anyway, he said, quote, where are these uh, additional 40 police coming from? Siphoning 40 officers from the front line across the NT to boost resources in Central Australia is just robbing Peter to pay Paul. In Parliament today, the Chief Minister trumpeted the fact Labour has increased the budget for police by 36%. We would argue a majority of that is being spent on overtime because we simply don't have enough police to do the jobs expected of them from this government. And it's also a sentiment that was raised in the uh, police member survey. Uh, was negative on Jamie Chuck was that the cops were overworked. There weren't enough, enough of them to do what was expected of them. Um, so here you have the NTPA, the police association saying we don't have 40 to go down there. And we know from talking to police before that when that happens, they take them from wherever crime in those other places increases while these guys are focusing on Alice Springs and then it's cyclical. And then they'll come back up to Darwin and crime will come down a little bit here, but it'll go back up in Alice and then they'll send them in Alice. And it's like, well, this isn't tenable. Like you can't just continue to do this stuff. But yet here we are, we don't seem to be getting any better. And as many cops as Chalker likes to say, and he put out a press release. And like I said, we'll have a story about the numbers Friday morning, as much as he likes to say that we have all these new recruits coming in, they don't really match the numbers of people leaving. Hmm. And bless your leaving experience. The experience is leaving. Um, the recruits have no experience. In fact, we're not even sure they're being trained properly at the police college. They weren't a couple of years ago. I, I doubt very strongly if they haven't been able to fix the other problems in police that they fixed the police college training problems. I don't think they've done that. Anyway, it's just an entire mess here. Uh, and Alice Springs just... I, I don't. I don't know how these people put up with this stuff anymore, really. And then we've just heard Warden um, come out and say more of the same thing. We're working to make sure we can have an, an intervention to take those young people into a safe environment. Blah blah blah. Nothing's working. No, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, you didn't know yeah. what to say in the last story. I don't know what to say about this story because it's uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, we can see it. We we know that there's a problem, and yet they keep doing the same things. I guess. I guess that's maybe it. That they've got to start looking at a different way of doing this because to keep moving the cops around from place to place, region to region, it's not working. That's not working. So how do you just stop this? And how do you stop this where it's become so dangerous to the point that? They're stealing cars and using them as weapons to attack police. And if they're doing that, they don't care about any citizen. They'll just run them over a civilian. Um, yeah, that, that there's got to be a different way of doing this. And I don't know why it's taking them this long. Like, this is an emergency situation here. Like, they tried to say this needs to be declared as an emergency. And Files has said this is the biggest focus. This is the biggest problem that we have in the NT right now. And we're focused on it. 
and yet again we're we're not doing anything different than what we've always done and the problems keep just popping back up all right well uh let's uh, turn our attention now then to um the gst and uh, in fact the debt that yeah <laughs> that uh, this government has been presiding over for the last little while, an unexpected surge in GST payments of more than half a billion dollars, enhanced taxation and an increased mining royalty, and and, sorry, and increased mining royalty uh, revenues helped, but were not enough to unburden the territory's fiscal position, which has come in with a $330 million deficit for 2021-22 and a massive $7.6 billion net debt, which we have to keep reminding ourselves was $1.5 billion when Labor won <laughs> office in 2016. <laughs> I think they were saying, I think the CLP said something like that, that it's a billion dollars a year on average that they're adding to the debt, to the net debt. So, yes, yeah, so look, the numbers are back now, final numbers for 21-22, and a, a slight improvement. But I think that's the best we can say. Now, the uh, the deficit stood at $330 million for that year. It was an improvement of uh, $524 million from the revised figure that they had. So, we were expecting that it was going to be $800 and 50-something. Uh, so, it was better now. What's interesting about that $524 million figure is that that's the same amount of unexpected GST revenue that they got according to the figures. Um, but again, there were some positive steps in terms of uh, mining royalty revenues, uh, more more own source revenue from taxation uh, had come in. And so the debt, the overall net debt for the year, as we said, came in around $7.6 billion. Now that's $1.36 billion better than forecast in the 21-22 budget. But again, still the highest net debt in the history of the NT. You're always interested, Leon, in the net debt to revenue ratio. Mm-hmm. So it dropped from a forecast 122% to 96%. Uh, however, the interest payments increased mm-hmm. from 364 million to 374 million annually. So over a million, over a million dollars a day is paid by this government in interest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm still doing that over a million. Uh, yeah, and the CLP come out and said that that uh, Labor had added nearly a billion dollars of debt to the territory every year they've been in government. Uh, it's a small improvement and was predicted and is still a $7.6 billion debt. There will be an eye-watering amount next year, uh, if not Caro said. So, and remember, they're still planning or forecasted for a $8.7 billion debt this financial year and $9.2 billion next. And uh, I think the way things are looking economically, uh, it's going to get a lot worse than that. But uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Leah Fanacaro, CLP, said that uh, the perceived improvements were not as they appeared. A closer look at the details soon reveals how projects have been moved from year to year to put a better spin on the result, she said. Two-thirds of the lowered estimates for debt are a result of shifting $240 million of costs from last year into this year. So, um, 
No, Eva Lawler. She put this out. Actually, I, I listened to her talk about 10 after 12 on um, the other <laughs> night after midnight. She was actually gets up and starts talking about this. Now she, and you have to take out all of this, all the sugar-coated stuff. Like I just won't run lines that I know aren't true. I just, I've got a problem with that and I just won't do that. But anyway, we did quote her saying this. Eva Lawler said the slightly improved figures quote, positions the territory to tackle and overcome uncertainty and challenges ahead. That was the best line I could put in there. I don't believe that that's the case, but you know, she's a treasurer. She can say what she wants here about that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, uh, this is anything to really be patting yourself on the back for, uh, especially considering what's approaching us and what's coming. Uh, this is, uh, I guess the only way to look at a slight improvement, but, but basically not on anything again. Can I say that, that the government's done? This is, this is no policy on their part. There's no savings here. This mm -hmm. was, this was GST getting bigger. They moved some back end numbers around for projects, more GST than they expected. And they had increased, you know, mining, um, figures here were, were, were quite high. And in fact, <laughs> mineral production uh, value is pegged to 4.86 billion, marking a 14% increase from last year's 4.28 billion. It's that figure is just below the uh, ever highest, highest ever value of 4.92 billion, 2018, 19. Uh, so a lot of positive things in the mining and mineral sector here that came out of that. I think Madison was taking credit for that. Um, yeah, look, but just back to the main point here is that they uh, that, that this isn't any savings that they've made. It's just a lot of uh, some good news before, but is potentially to be a lot of bad economic news coming up. Hmm. All right. Well, um, Chris, finally, we well, we would like to congratulate you on the fact that the NT Independent has won the best news coverage at the 2022 NT Media Awards for the second year in a row. That is right. <laughs> yes, and thanks, Leon. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, we, we, we went to the awards. We didn't win the other one, but, um, you know, like I said, any time that you get, uh, you get nominated even for these, these days, it means more than, than, than they used to mean for me when I was at the NT News and ABC because starting the NT Independent, as you know, has been such a, a struggle and was very difficult to do and made all the more difficult by the fact that the government, you know, illegally and without real reason banned us from ever attending their press conferences and forbid us from asking the government departments questions and made the job a lot more difficult. Uh, and I think that's what the, uh, the judges recognized. I think they said that when they gave us the best news coverage award that yeah, it's made all the more difficult by the fact the government won't talk to you and won't provide you with information. So, you know, it's good. And like I said, that it's, it's anytime that, and we go to these and we, we appreciate them and we appreciate them more than ever because every time I think that we win or we get nominated, it's just another form of embarrassment for this government and another argument for why we should be allowed in <laughs> and you know just as a personal story leon when i was there at the awards and i got up to win um netta vanovac she used to be the president of the press club and so and i was on the executive of the press club as well here for years um she was president i was secretary i was a uh, treasurer and 
anyway, so she, but she did all the work, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> and she had to organize a lot of these events and I'm um, seeing her and it, it just kind of reminded me as I got up to accept the award and I said, um, I said, you know, I think when they gave me the award, I said, how many more of these do we have to win before we get an invite to a government press conference? Mm. And then I started and, you know, I didn't have anything planned. I just I kind of popped into my head. And then I thought, you know, uh, these years I've, I've stood here and I've talked about this. So I, and I go back to what I normally do. And I said, you know, everybody, I in a room full of journalists and i said we're always better when we work together and i've said that and i'm, I'm then I'm, i've kind of made eye contact with netta and it just jogs that and i said geez you know I, I feel like i've given this speech before and i had when i was at you know the nt news and i was winning these awards and, and going back to 2015 2014 and on and i always said that even back then we're better when we work together we all need to work together and i said i've really enjoyed it when I was at that press conference a couple of weeks ago of the front of parliament host for Kate Warden. Mm. And, um, and I said, you know, and I've been saying this, that we work together, but yet nobody's working together with me. And, you know, so I'm going to put it to you guys right now, start working with us and we are better when we work together. So stop going to their press conferences until we're all allowed into their press conferences. No, you said that? Yeah, and I said, and I'll leave it with you guys now. Mm -hmm. But that's mm -hmm. what has to be done. Yeah. I haven't heard from anybody. <laughs> 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 I went and I went and I talked to Ben Gabbana. He's the uh, really nice guy. He's um, ABC journalist who is the current president of the press club. So I had a word with him after about that. And mm -hmm. he made a commitment that we'd have a chat about that and what the press club could do to kind of maybe do something else too. I think that's the, the only, I don't know how we get to that point, but. Um, well, it is embarrassing, I think, yeah. um, for, for, for the press club um, yeah. and, and for the other journalists that are turning up there to win these awards, because by, by doing that, they're acknowledging that you are a legitimate um, news outlet. Um, and yet they are also aware that you are not being treated the same way that they are. Yeah, and, you know, and we just, you know we talk about discrimination. We talked about that at the start <laughs> of this podcast. Well, that's... people being discriminated against uh, on the basis mm -hmm. that uh, I can't, but we don't really even know, do we? <laughs> so, um, well, I, I, maybe we take it to the anti-discrimination commissioner through these new laws, and you can file it. You can be offended on my behalf. <laughs> well, I am offended, so yeah. maybe I, I need to look at those uh, those new laws and see how they work because. Yeah. You know, I, and that's the thing that I don't understand. Like, I'd be uncomfortable if I was a journalist going to an award like that, knowing that you're being treated differently to me and I'm turning up there to try and win an award, or, you know, or represent the, the journalists and I'm not doing anything about it. Yeah. Uh, well, Leon, I know. And I, like, I don't like shaming them or anything, but. I just think what I would do, and I would be doing something if another journalist wasn't allowed. I, I've talked about this for eight years at these awards working together. I mean it. I've tried to work with everybody, every journalist. Like I'm, I was there when I was at ABC too. You know, I was put in that position where I had all the young journalists coming up to me, and I would take the time to to give them any help that they needed. Because, and that's why I joined the press club when I was mm. on the board for five years was that I felt it was so important that we all stick together mm. and that we all help each other out. And yet when I need it, no one's there for me. Yes. And that, that's essentially it. So, <laughs> you know what? I, I, I'm fine. I'm a big boy. I'll, I'll move on and we'll, we'll keep 
I'll yeah, keep, it's just, uh, it's just disappointing. Do, it's disappointing because it means it, it just shows that people uh, don't have the, you know, they don't have the backbone for it. Yeah. It, it takes backbone to do what you do. Yeah. You know, well, but the way this is all falling apart too, Leon, like, uh, you know, people, and I won't name names here, but, um, you know, people coming up saying, oh, Chris, we want to help, but, you know, what can we do? And yeah. we, can we talk to the press club? I say, yeah, 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 you can do that. Well, I don't know if we can boycott them. So you can do whatever you want. Just go and do whatever you want. Yeah. But I said, uh, okay, here's an easy solution. Let me know when the next press conference is with files when she's outside. Yes. And I'll that's come and see solution. what happens. Yeah, that is a great. In fact, that's what you know. That's what they should do. I mean, if they're not prepared to boycott press conferences, just let me know when. As soon as they get the email that you don't get, it should be flicked over to you. I would have thought. Well, because maybe there's a thong of the position, which is what I start to think when we had somebody like Kate Warden who let me into that press conference. They didn't object. It wasn't that she allowed me in, but we were in a public place and I Mm. showed up and she said, I know Chris, he's a good guy. Mm. I'll let him ask questions. The world didn't fall in on her. I wasn't rude. I wasn't angry. I asked normal questions with everyone else and we all moved on. Mm. So, you know, maybe that's the approach, uh, but they haven't told us. So, yeah, so I've asked them, but I haven't heard from anybody yet either. I I think that's a, that's a really good approach. And I, you know, I certainly would like to see, uh, journalists do that particularly for me the abc because they are the yeah. ones that bang on about fairness and mm-hmm. about equity and all that and they are they are the public broadcaster in my mind rightly or wrongly i hold the abc to a higher standard than everybody else right well they, yeah but i get why <laughs> you should yeah. you know and and i'm just so shocked and dismayed yeah that the abc of all outlets are not up in arms about this. I mean, Christ, that, that it's public money that they use to run the ABC. They should be there for all Australians and saying, hey, we're going to point this out because our charter should say, if it doesn't, that, you know, we're here to stand up for the free press. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. yeah. And and they have the resources and they can push their weight around oh, a little just... bit more than us little guys who don't have the resources, yeah. which was acknowledged with the award and and yeah look we were so thankful for that and thankful to just everybody who, who reads us who, who who subscribes who, who listens to podcasts everything you you and peter for your support over the years like it's great anytime we can do that and just show that not only are we legitimate news outlet we're one of the best and that we excel in these um things and, the, and they, like i said the judges are all interstate judges uh from different media organizations across the country who recognize that and you know this isn't people who know us who just read our stories and like wow that's really good like how did he uncover this procurement scandal you know in the chief minister's department and and then how does he get this stuff and they just thought you know this is really good journalism so we're thankful for that we'll keep working hard and um uh yeah hopefully they'll, they'll come to their senses at some point but in the meantime We've still got so many good stories to come, and we'll just keep holding them accountable. Well, I think that's our good, job. Yeah. Well, I think this week is a good. You know, it's, it's been a good week for stories, and I'm very intrigued, particularly by the story on, on the coronial inquest. I, yeah. And, and your comments about the fact that no one else seems to be picking that up to me that that is a very intriguing story. 
yeah, I was getting texts from people around the country about that. Why isn't anyone else doing this? And I said, I thought that they did. Like, I, I didn't know. I didn't look because I was too busy, like, doing that and other things. But, yeah, um, well, yeah. Anyway, we've got to get to the bottom of that because that, that, that is very chilling for our democracy up here when the police force is doing this stuff mm-hmm. and getting away with it. Nobody seems to care. I mean, my God. My God, an innocent man could have been in jail, but you know, people don't like him, so that's okay. That's that, that doesn't work with me. No. Well, Chris, uh, thank you very much for another week of stories. Um, I hope it was okay without Pete's, uh, you know, putting his two cents in. <laughs> yeah, he's on assignment, but he'll be back to throw those in next week, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I this is the part that I always get uh, tongue tied in, but um. I guess we'll see everyone next week on this podcast. So um, (laughs) thanks very much. Yeah, sounds good, Leon. We'll see you next week. That was Chris Walsh, um, the editor of the NT online newspaper. Uh, I think I got that right. Yes. Um, We'll catch you all next week. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to TerritoryStory.com. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.